the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Language of a conservative or of a liberal, of conservative thought or liberal thought today. Here it is, and I am quoting. In view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights are guaranteed by the supreme law of the land are involved. That's the end of the quote, close quote. There's not a liberal or a college professor in the country that would say this describes liberal opinion today. It's certainly at complete odds with the 1619 Project and all we consider to be critical historical or race theory, isn't it? It's the language of the sole dissenting Supreme Court Justice John Marshall Harlan in the 1896 case of Plessy versus Ferguson. I'm guessing that case is still, still taught in our history classes, as it was in mine when I was in high school. But I'm quoting the dissent, and we learned that dissenting language in high school as well. I don't know if the case is still taught. But if it is, I bet that dissenting language isn't included because, of course, it runs contrary to the modern intellectual fashions about our Constitution and our founding. Now, if the Plessy versus Ferguson case rings a bell, it's the case that came to stand for the instantiation and reification of the notion of separate but equal. And many are today taught that it took the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision to overturn that terrible law, that terrible decision in Plessy. Why is this relevant? This morning, CBS News, as well as the Arizona Republic, had a story that in Louisiana, the governor posthumously pardoned Homer Plessy yesterday, the named party in Plessy versus Ferguson, the man arrested back in the 1890s for sitting in the white section of a train in Louisiana. It's a good pardon, of course, and it's late in coming. And to the degree Brown versus Board overturned separate but equal, that's a great thing, too. Justice John Marshall Harlan, the dissenter in the Plessy case, one might say, has been vindicated. For he'd have exonerated Homer Plessy and struck down the separate but equal laws and doctrine based on his reading of the Constitution and constitutional history, where his dissent, the majority opinion, there would have been no story today about Homer Plessy needing, uh, needing exoneration. And yet, nowhere in any of these stories is John Marshall's language cited. Of course, it's because it is out of step, outre, and file, flies in the face of all the left tells us about America, i.e. that the constant, that's a constitution in our founding was a racist document and of a racist origin. Not everyone ever always thought that. 
That was the view, as you've heard me many times, of the Confederacy, of men like Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens. It was not the view of those who fought for and led the Union, like Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. You know, the victors representing the majority of America and Americans. So we praise the at-long-last vindication of Homer Plessy, but do we know why we do? Do we know or even understand why separate but equal was wrong? The Brown versus Board case did not tell us, nor did it cite John Marshall Harlan either. And it applied specifically, as the court said, only to education, which of course was later expanded universally after the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It is because of one reason, all of it. The liberal or left cause depends on continuing to take the Confederate view and history of our founding and Constitution in order to continue to berate and belittle our founding and our country. There's no reason for progressivism and the progressive Constitution, after all, if you can find enlightened thought in the original one. Perhaps we can begin to understand for a moment how the greatest racist to sit in the White House since the beginning of the 20th century was also the nation's leading progressive intellectual, Woodrow Wilson, who would show and praise a KKK movie in the White House. And yet we conservatives are told we need to examine our implicit racism and bias. Theirs, explicit, never to be examined. In our effort to continue to point out the danger of feelings and emotion and the therapeutic to triumph over facts, reason, and intellect, I give you Harry V. Jaffa's point on Brown versus Board and Plessy against Ferguson. The crisis of American constitutionalism today turns on the interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, the jurisprudence of something called the Living Constitution has largely replaced the traditional jurisprudence of original intent. What has ruled the judicial process or the last half century is not what the framers and ratifiers of the original Constitution, as modified by the framers and ratifiers of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, understood their words to mean, but what justices and litigators and professors think those words ought to mean. In the Brown case, Chief Justice Warren, speaking for a unanimous court, declared public school segregation to be in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment because of the irreparable damage it inflicted on the, in his words, minds and hearts of black school children. This damage was asserted on the basis of modern psychology, which was not available to those who framed and ratified the 14th Amendment. Hence, it was not asserted on the basis of what the Equal Protection Clause had meant when it was ratified. Warren's opinion in Brown thus cut the jurisprudence out of the 14th Amendment and with it the jurisprudence of the Constitution as a whole. He cut it loose from any anchor in the historic meaning of the Constitution. There is no longer any constructive relationship between the Constitution and constitutional law. In 1896, in Plessy v. Ferguson, the court decided that separate but equal did not violate the Equal Protection Clause, and the South, and not only the South, relied upon this decision in building their systems of racially segregated public schools. The court's 1896 decision can be explained in part by reason of the fact that the country and the Western world generally was then nearly submerged by the evolutionary enlightenment. This movement, which dominated the intellectual elites in universities, the law schools, and the media, 
denied the story of creation in the Bible and rejected, rejected the hitherto received idea that God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. It entertained instead the idea that the races of mankind did not all emerge at the same time from the subhumanity which preceded their humanity. Evolutionary doctrine encouraged the idea that there was a fundamental inequality among the aforesaid races, and this idea virtually relegated to the dustbin of history the contrary idea enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address that all men are created equal. Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion in Plessy that the Constitution was colorblind and that it did not countenance different and unequal classes of citizens was based on a belief in the truth of the principle of equality in which the founders and Lincoln had so profoundly believed. But this belief had been buried by progressivism and had not been resurrected. On intellectual grounds, it has never been refuted and ought never to have been abandoned. That is not now and never has been. There is not now and never has been such difference between one human being and another human being or whatever race or color, such that one is by nature the ruler of the other, as any human being is by nature, say, the ruler of any dog or any horse. For this reason, legitimate political authority can arise only by the consent of the governed, and consent can never be given for any reason other than the equal protection of the rights of those governed. Hence, equal protection is the foundation of all constitutionalism, even apart from its specific inclusion in the Constitution itself. For more reasons than one, Justice Harlan's dissenting opinion ought to have been the opinion of the court in 1896. Even more ought it to have been the opinion of the court in 1954. The 14th Amendment was intended to drive a stake through the heart of the Dred Scott decision. The heart of that opinion consisted in the assertion that blacks were so far inferior that they had no rights which white men were bound to respect. This meant that as far as the Constitution was concerned, the distance between whites and blacks was no less than the distance between whites and any other inferior or deemed inferior species. A white man had the same right to rule a black man as he had to rule a dog or a horse. Hence, according to Dred Scott's decision, Blacks were not and could not have been included in the proposition that all men are created equal. Whether or not they were intended to be so included was among the questions most fiercely debated by Lincoln and Douglas. No result of the Civil War was more fundamental than the authoritative assertion of the inclusion of human beings of any color and any ethnicity in the proposition of human equality. A consensus in favor of the colorblind Constitution is provided by the logic of reality and the logic of of history. But if we can dig just a bit deeper on the meaning and into the meaning of Plessy and segregation and its birthing doctrine of separate but equal, can we go back to the beautiful dissent of John Marshall Harlan when he wrote that the Plessy decision, quote, will not only stimulate aggressions more or less brutal and irritating, but will encourage the belief that it is possible by means of state enactments to defeat the beneficent purposes which the people of the United States had in view when they adopted the amendments to the Constitution, close quote. He was, of course, speaking of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. He said, quote, The destinies of the two races in this country are indissolubly linked together, and the interests of both require that the common government of all 
shall not permit the seeds of race hate to be planted under the sanction of law. What can more certainly arouse race hate? What more certainly creates and perpetuates a feeling of distrust between these races than state enactments which in fact proceed on the ground that the black citizens are inferior and degraded, that they cannot be allowed to sit in public coaches occupied by the White House or the white citizens? That argument, if it can be properly regarded as one, is scarcely worthy of consideration. For social equality no more exists between two races when traveling in a passenger coach or public highway than when members of the same races sit by each other in a streetcar or in the jury box or stand or sit with each other in political assembly or when they use in common the streets of a city or town or when they are in the same room for the purposes of having their names placed on the registry of voters or when they approach the ballot box in order to exercise their privilege of voting. Close quote. So while the good folks at CBS and in the Arizona Republic celebrate the late victory to the family descendants of Homer Plessy, might they look back to the 1800s for half a moment and look today at what they are doing in resegregating society by race exactly as Plessy stood for and exactly as John Marshall Harlan argued against? We don't need to reinvent history and we don't need to distort it or bury it or ignore its inconveniences. But when we do, we get these cognitive dissonances or double thinks where at once we declaim against a great wrong of the past while repeating it wholesale and retail in the very present. We've done it with COVID vaccines and testing, giving priority in places like New York City to racial minorities. And of course, we've done it all over our college campuses with separate and segregated housing and graduating ceremonies. So much so that now black students at places like ASU can take the energumen of separate but equal to force white students out of multicultural centers because they just shouldn't be there because they are of the wrong skin color. I hate segregation and racism. It's one of the worst things in any society. I hate more that my country is so far removed from its bearings that it continues here routinely and with the countenance of authority, all the while because it dismisses the John Marshall Harlins and Abraham Lincolns and Union soldiers and takes on the arguments of those who wrote the majority decision in Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson and the Confederacy. Bad history has consequences. Indeed, for tyranny to take over, as Orwell long ago warned, that is the first thing that must be changed, history. The alteration of the past is necessary for two reasons, Orwell said, one of which is subsidiary and, so to speak, precautionary. The subsidiary reason is that the party member, like the proletarian, tolerates present-day conditions partly because he has no standards of comparison. He must be cut off from the past. But by far the more important reason for the readjustment of the past is the need to safeguard the infallibility of the party. It is not merely that speeches, statistics, and records of every kind must be constantly brought up to date in order to show that the predictions of the party were in all cases right. It is that we must bury and burn history. Well, the party wasn't right then and it isn't right now. And funny enough, it's the same party. How did C.S. Lewis put it? Quote, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible as though a gas, as through a ghastly simplicity we demand certain functions after excising from the body politic the organs that permit them. That precisely is what has been done today in Louisiana, 
and elsewhere. Perhaps if we accepted the truth John Marshall Harlan spoke and wrote in 1896, it wouldn't have taken so long to vindicate the name of Homer Plessy, who Harlan was trying to vindicate then. But then, of course, that would have been vindicating the founders. And that, as you know, we can never do. By, by the way, on that uh, – listen, there is so much. It's so hard to keep track of. On that issue of using race to prioritize COVID remediations, COVID tests, COVID vaccines, particularly in New York, Betsy McCoy writes in the New York Post – if you're white and middle class, the push for health care equity could kill you. Prominent medical organizations in the Biden administration are pressing for rules that will move disadvantaged populations to the front of the line for scarce medical resources. Think vaccines, ventilators, monoclonal antibodies, and that means everyone else waits longer, in some cases too long. Last week, as was reported, the New York City Task Force on Racial Inclusion and Equity prioritized the distribution of COVID-19 testing kits to 31 neighborhoods. Staten Island's racially diverse North Shore got 13 testing sites, while the mostly white South Shore got none. The State Department of Health, meanwhile, announced that scarce monoclonal antibody treatments will be allocated to patients based on how many risk factors they have, which include age, vaccine status, Medical conditions, and you got it, quote, non-white or Hispanic Latino ethnicity, close quote. If this outrage were happening only in New York, the remedies would be simple. Gothamites are already rid of Mayor de Blasio, who saw virtually everything through a racial lens. But federal public health officials and almost the entire academic medical establishment are pushing, you know what they're calling it? Reparations medicine. As the nation prepared to roll out vaccines in the fall of 2020, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention called on states to submit distribution plans. That September, the agency urged them to pri prioritize disadvantaged populations, including, quote, people from racial and ethnic minority groups, close quote, for vaccine supplies and appointments instead of spreading the resources equally. Guess what? New York wasn't the only state that complied. You want to guess another one? Go ahead. You get 33 more chances. 34 states complied with this. A majority. Most used the CDC's Social Vulnerability Index, which ranks every U.S. neighborhood based on 15 factors, including things like density, income, race and language. If two areas are similar in most factors, the one with the larger minority or non-English speaking population gets the higher score and more resources. North Carolina asked local officials to re reserve 40 percent of vaccination appointments for its black population. Are we not all Americans here anymore? And by the way, if it's true what Elena Kagan thinks and Joe Biden keep saying, which is why maybe Elena Kagan thinks this, if it's true that the vaccines stop transmission, which is what Elena Kagan and Joe Biden say, 
If that's true, does this disease know to stop between people of races? Does it know that? Maybe we just shouldn't commingle anymore. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Mike is in Scottsdale. How are you, Mike? Yes, I am just wondering if it may not be the... Mike, I, I think it's on your end. We're having a hard time hearing you, buddy. Can Do me a favor. I, you, I, I'd love to hear from you. Do me a favor. Uh, we'll go right back to you. Just hang up and call us right back. I'm going to take one other caller, and then when we're done with him, we'll go right to you, Mike, if you can hear me. It's just I just can't hear you. Probably a bad connection. Hello, Rick. Hey, Brother Seth. How are you, brother? I'm doing well. Terrific monologue today, oh, and I've got you. two things, yes, one sir. serious and one unserious. Start with the second. Like the second? Yeah, start with the unserious. Okay. It's the Friday. The unserious is the Friday Follies. Okay. So I, I, it, uh, I had a flash of inspiration. It occurred to me that there is one eminent artist that is missing from your bumper music. Oh, gosh. And that is... Ray Stevens with his great heats, hits like The Streak, Don't Look Mabel or You'll Go Blind, and Mississippi Squirrel Revival. They were confessing sins they hadn't even committed. <laughs> These are my principles. If you don't like them, I'll find others. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank okay. you for that. Yes, sir. Enough. Enough silly goofiness. No, that's all right. It's that, Friday. We we, that, we need to go into the weekend. Be enough that to get your your boss uh, blood boiling there for a little. No, bit. no, no. He, no, no. Uh, okay, he, okay. He, now he's the calmest uh, guy I know. He really is. I mean, yeah, he's the embodiment. We don't read this poem enough. Once upon a time, it was too read, um, and it was overused. It was saturated, and we yeah. overreacted by never uttering it or reading from it again. But it's the poem "If" by Rudyard Kipling. Oh yes, yeah, my, oh, yeah. my my boss Fantastic. Jim Ryan is the embodiment of the poem "If" by Rudyard. If you want to know Jim Ryan, just read Rudyard Kipling's poem "If." That's that's well, that's who Jim is. Well, I was impressed when I met him. Uh, you know, when I came up there and, and met him, I was I was very impressed. Oh yeah, no, he's he's. Very I've had a lot of great bosses in my life. I really have. Very privileged. Jim is right there at the top. Yeah. So let me throw this yes, serious sir. thing at you. you. That was a terrific monologue. Thank you, Thank you for reminding and, and remembering. And I, I guess it's just astounding that so many folks don't get it. No. But it occurred to me there is a, a quote from Frederick Douglass yes, sir. that may well identify what the problem really is. Okay. Now, I don't have the exact quote, yeah. but he said something to the effect that many racists don't want the patient to get well, otherwise they will lose their job. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and he said that back around the the turn of the last century. You know, he identified that then was the problem. Munchausen racism by proxy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think sometimes it is unconscious that they do it. Sure. Sometimes it is conscious sure. that they do it. I agree. But either way, they just see it because, hey, I'm invested in this. Yeah, they are invested in it. So much so that, you know, we are taught 
by presidential candidates to examine all of our implicit bias. Hillary Clinton brought that to us in 2016, that we oh. have to all of us examine our implicit bias. Speak Absolutely. for yourself, you know. Speak yeah. for yourself. I, I don't know how she can know me. I mean, that is the definition of prejudice, by the way. That is the definition of prejudice, saying you know something about someone you've never examined met or met. Right, right. It's a prejudice statement in and of itself to allege racism about someone else you do not know. I've never met her. She doesn't know me. I don't need to examine my implicit racism because of her thinking I have implicit bias. Right, right. I assume you've never met her either, and you don't either. And and, And that attitude and that thinking really needs to be eradicated, and yet... That is the predominant uh, teaching in academia. and It, it, it the, suffuses the, our culture. The idea yeah. that America is systemically racist is probably more popular than the idea that it isn't. Yeah, And exactly. if it isn't more popular, it's on par. Yeah. Let me put it to you this way. If you were to interview for a job at any major network – or any newspaper, and they asked you, do you believe that America is systemically racist? Your answer of no will not get you hired. Right. Will be a reason for you not getting hired. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the great program, Seth. Rick, thank you, and I hope you look forward to a great weekend as well. Mike, I'm glad you called back. We'll go to you right after the break. We were just talking about this song yesterday, weren't we? Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Mike in Scottsdale called back. Hi, Mike. Hi. Thanks for thanks for taking me back. You bet. But we we can't hear it's you not still. Correctly. Yeah, we can't yeah. hear you. You can't hear me. Uh, try it. Like, let's give it a shot. Okay. I I was thinking the American uh, by John. Yeah, we can't hear you, buddy. Is it is it a chord that's got a shorten it or a bad cell area? No, it's just an old phone. Do you have a newer one? Nope. <laughs> All right. I'm going to give you another shot here, and then maybe you can just email us. How's that? Okay. Um, the, the hyphenated American yeah. by John Wayne. Yes, sir. I think it's time to maybe resurrect that again. Were you the one who taught me about it in the first place? As it was a listener. Was that you, Mike? Yes, yes. I'm was. so glad and grateful for you for doing it. it, it that was, Thank you. Yeah, you bet. I didn't know it existed. I mean, I knew the Native American as a concept existed. I didn't know sure. that John Wayne narrative about it. Did. Well, I think, I, I don't know why, but I just really like it. And I think I, I would see even if you if you could put a segment on your show somewhere where you play it every day so that people can actually memorize it uh, because they've heard well, here's what I could important. do, uh, and just because you're breaking up a little, email me anything you wanted to add, okay, Mike? It's just um, i got to be cogniz- uh, conscious of how, how the listeners hear it, so I mean no short shrift at all. Just email me if you don't mind or, or find another phone and call us back. But I, I don't think I can play it every day, but what I will do is <laughs> I will uh, play it again, and hopefully the listeners can themselves access it because uh, I believe it's available Broadly on the internet, but it is a. Um, we won't do it right, right just now. But it it, it is a. Um, um, it's a monologue. Yeah, that's what it is. It's a monologue by John Wayne on the meaning of the hyphenated American. Did you see this study came out a few years back, or are you aware of this study a few years back? Ninth grade immigrants being tracked 
through their high school years. They come here in the ninth grade from whatever country they come from and they identify as Americans. By the 12th grade, they identify as hyphenated Americans. Think about that. Think about that. People immigrate here and obviously if you come in the ninth grade, it's more likely than not by a long shot that it wasn't by dint of your own efforts but your parents or relatives or friends or something, right? Because how old are you in the ninth grade? 14? 15? 13? 14. And um, so they come here and their parents are delighted to have them here. They made the conscious decision to come here and they can't wait to say they're Americans. They love the idea of having made it, having come to the land of opportunity. Only for our school system and our culture to wring out that patriotism, to wring the patriotism out of them, to pedagogically destroy not only their pride in America, but their identity as an American. It's a very weird thing, such that by the time they're graduating, they're now considered a something American, a qualified American. They weren't when they got here, not in their own eyes, not in their own brains, not in their own minds or souls. But by the time they leave high school, by the time they're 18, by the time they're ready to enter the real world, so to speak, or vote, or go to college, or join the military, we have vitiated, we have weakened, we have watered down their pride in this country and their pride in affiliating as an American in this country. Do you remember the times? You don't hear this anymore. This used to be said a lot that, excuse me, that in becoming an American from another country, we are the only country that convey in the, in the world that can convey that on you. You cannot move or emigrate to another country and be called, say, a Frenchman. You can't, as an American, move to France and be considered a Frenchman. You wouldn't consider yourself a Frenchman. Remember when that used to be talked about all the time? It used to be much, much more common. We don't do it anymore. I don't know why. I will say this. The hypothetical hardly exists. The hypothetical hardly exists. This new mayor of, uh, mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, Watch this man. I don't know if he's going to succeed like Ed Koch or fail like Bill de Blasio or David Dinkins. New York City has had a history of good mayors, great mayors, bad mayors, and awful mayors. Uh, Ed Koch and Rudy Giuliani and Mike Bloomberg probably in our lifetimes come in as the good ones, if not great. Uh, There are some who are terrible. Lindsey Beam, uh, Dinkins, de Blasio. It's too early to say. My gosh, he's not even on the job a week. But look at his life story. Look at his life story and tell me this is a systematically racist country. Look at his life story and tell me you can't do whatever you want in America. Do you know what his life story is? It's not being focused on very much. Once upon a time, it would have been dirt poor, dirt poor, abusive father. Mother in and out. Alcoholism throughout. Look at that life story and tell me 
it can't be done here because it can. These are living rebukes. And that's probably why – living rebukes to the left. That's probably why he wasn't favored by the left. It's also probably why you don't see these glowing kind of biographies of him. Is that not interesting to you a little bit? It's not as if he's the first black mayor of New York City. He's not. I guess David Dinkins was. But after everything we went through in 2020 and after everything we've gone through in 2021, wouldn't you think he'd be much more prominent? He'd be the cover of magazines. He'd be the toast of interviews and media in the town. It's not as if New York City doesn't loom large in everything we're talking about right now. But you know why he isn't? You know why he isn't? I think they don't want to look at the biography too terribly much, and I don't think they want to hear what he has to say about crime too terribly much. He was a police captain who doesn't believe in reimagining or defunding the police. Your racial makeup matters in this country to the media and the left if it only tells one narrative, if it only tells one. You know what the problem with that is? The problem with that is indeed justice delayed. It is an instruction to children that they can't succeed when they can, and it is a delay of justice just like I identified in the monologue. If John Marshall Harlan's dissent were ever to have been taken as controlling or as right or have been given any countenance in Supreme Court dicta or jurisprudence since 1896 – it wouldn't have taken till yesterday to vindicate the name of Homer Plessy. You distort and bury history. You distort and bury what's in front of your very eyes for partisan, political, and progressive purposes. You distort everything. You distort everything, starting with what children in this country think they can grow up to be and what kind of country we are. It's a terrible thing to defame or slander someone. Think about an entire culture and country. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. A lot has happened uh, over the last two weeks in Arizona politics. And uh, I just wanted to set the table at the top of the next hour. We're going to have uh, one of the great political analysts and uh, consultants here in our state, George Kaloff from the Resolute Group, joining us to go over what some of the redistricting means, what the campaign finance reports mean, what the races going forward look like. Um, he is um, he is the best. Uh, he is the best there is. And uh, we're looking forward Looking forward to that. I just uh, – I've got so much I want to do today. I, I want to I do this with you real quick. Well, before I do that, let me plant this with you. I don't know how many of you have followed the dispute between Ted Cruz and Tucker Carlson that I guess aired last night. Tucker had been on it for a couple of days and Ted Cruz asked if he could come on the show and discuss with Tucker his um, – his indictment of Cruz for using the word terrorist in describing the January 6th riots. And uh, we'll go through it a little bit later in the show more completely. But I, I just want to plant the question. If, if you haven't seen it, we'll air it for you. You can try and access – you can access it on your computer or, or – yeah, on your computer or laptop um, if you want over the, over the, over the break. But, but I just want you to think about – 
all the listeners I've heard on talk radio um, denouncing Ted Cruz and saying he's you know now part of the you know mainstream or he's part of the elites and that sort of thing. Maybe you can tell by the tone of my question, and I'm willing to be persuaded otherwise, of course. But how is it that you take a man who is as rock-ribbed conservative and a hero to us almost every day, listed in easily the top five of conservative leaders by you know the reddest of Americans and the most conservative of Republicans time and time and time again? Um, how is it that one sentence – one sentence that he apologized for using garners him the indictments he's been getting from so many in our movement. One sentence misstated, as he said, puts him in the category of sellout. I, I, I just worry about some of that in our movement a little too much. I worry just a little, a little, little more grace a little more understanding that sometimes people are your heroes for a reason because you look at them in the totality of their careers and the totality, totality of their life and not one sentence one time that they apologized for uttering in the first place. It should seem to me that a movement that expects perfection is a movement that is reading way too much Karl Marx seriously. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 